Spoiler alert, we will be spoiling parts of this film, as well as others. If you wish to watch this film spoiler-free, turn back now before it's too late. Now, on with the show. They wanted to stay relevant, and that was the way that they could do it, was by releasing it for each new generation. Hello and welcome to Post Cut, the show where we analyze films from the latest to the greatest, the worst, and the lamest. I am your host, stage and voice actress, Sarah Peterson. Joining me are writer and editor, David M. Brown. Hello. VFX artist, David Vierkamp. Hello. Audio engineer, RJ Amficino. Hello. And on this episode of Post Cut, we review the film The Hunchback of Notre Dame, starring Jason Alexander, Kevin Klein, Tony J., Demi Moore, and directed by Gary Trousdale, Kirk Wise, from the 1996. This film can be found on Disney Plus or physical copy. Clearly, this was my pick of a movie because I adore this film and all of its artistry. And it really was a turning point in Disney animation. And so I want to hear what David Brown has to say about the film. So give me your first impression. Well... I fell asleep in the middle of it because it was boring. Uh, it is. It's one of the most boring Disney it's, films. It's it's the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Sorry, Notre Dame. Send all the hate mail right now. <laughs> I knew where it was going because I've seen uh, different uh, takes on the Hunchback of uh, Notre Dame, specifically the Lon Chaney version, um, which was silent. Uh, it's Disneyfication again. It's just the nicety. The villain wasn't, I mean, he's scary to kids, but I think, I think to kids, the scarier part is when the priest comes out and tells him that you can't escape the eyes of, of Notre Dame and they show the statues, you know, staring at him. That was creepy. Uh, I did like the voice of the villain. Wait. I don't remember his Minister name. Frollo. Yeah. I love Tony The voice actor J. was great. That he had a, Great voice for it. Um, yes, Tony J. And I want to say I that he did. Oh, he didn't. I was going to say I thought he did the the stage adaptation of it, but he he died in two thousand six. But he was on hmm. the Golden Girls. Yes, he was. And he was on a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, Disney movies and other animated features because he has that voice for animation. He is most mm -hmm. known for like things that are animated, but he also has a credit for being the narrator for an H.H. Holmes film, which I now need to watch because that's I, I do, fascinating. I do have one question. Yeah. Does Disney animate anything without it being a musical? Yes and no. Yes. Because, I don't know, it, musicals to me are just boring i feel that i they are so I mean, and i know people like you know like uh white christmas and all that and it, they're just boring to me they're just not my they're just no. not my kind of film exactly um i mean it, it stayed i guess from what i know of the story of the hunchback of notre dame it kind of stayed on point with it but again it it's the disnification of everything the gargoyles are nice and sweet. Oh, yeah. Under all of it, I will give Disney this on this particular film. It does teach the actual realistic lesson of if you're ugly, you're screwed. Yeah. Oh, Nobody yeah. likes you. This okay? movie is so unforgiving to Quasimodo. It, be, right. It, oh, it, man. It's unbelievable because you know he is just up there desiring and wanting Esmeralda. And then by and, the end of the and, movie, and it teaches the real. It teaches the real lesson. If you're ugly, you ain't getting something that's like that. Nothing. Nothing. You, you, you get nothing. You'll get the adulation. You'll get the adulation of the crowd who wants to like throw tomatoes at you and all that other stuff. Right. But you get nothothing The crowd's you know who, gonna not hold back on you. You know who Quasimodo actually reminded me of? The deformed guy in Under the Skin. Yes. No. He, exactly. Yes. Quasimodo is now being taught by the crowd what his master is technically correct on. Right. <laughs> You're ugly. No one is going to like you. His friends are imaginary. Yes. Now, granted, that's his situation. He's stuck in the tower, tower. and everything else like that. But 
again, it's the Disneyfication of telling little kids who are going to one day note that they are ugly because there are ugly people out there. And, and if you think I'm saying this because I think I'm the greatest looking person in the world, you're wrong. I'm one of them. So I know this lesson really well. Right. And the point is the crowd doesn't matter in its adulation. It doesn't because Quasimodo doesn't get what he wants. He wants that special somebody. Now, maybe in Notre Dame, maybe in the Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, which I saw on the Disney list, which I am not going to watch. That movie was bad. Maybe they finally give him what he actually desires. I don't know. I don't care. Right. So on that note, RJ, why don't you give us your first impression? Sure. So um, this is one of my favorite Disney films. Yay. For the se- And I, it's crazy. Uh, this is one of my favorite Disney films merely for the sake of it being one of the darkest Disney films ever. Uh, like ever. I beg uh, to differ. I- Sure, because well, Black it's... Cauldron, I think in, dar- in terms of dark theming, we're talking about France during its really, really religious period where the religion and politics are both like kind of mm-hmm. intertwined. That's a dark period, let me tell you. Um, and yet it's still quintessentially Disney. Oh, yeah. Which Throughout is the my whole point film, of Disneyfication. There's like, uh, there's all these bright colors. The color purple stands out the most. Purple and yellow are the biggest things in this film because they're like the brightest colors in the film. Um, but this film, I just, I mean, I love it for that sake. It's just, it's so dark. You got someone like Minister Frollo who has all this like genuine bad guy that doesn't know he's a bad guy. That's the coolest part. Or he knows he knows his sins, but he doesn't know that he, he doesn't know that his actions are just like garbage. Like re, he's a bad human being. No, I being. think he knows. I just think he doesn't care. You think so? Yeah. I mean, is, the best villains are the heroes of their own stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. So that's well, what makes him a good villain. It, when you, when you look at it from the villain perspective, he he has the jaded viewpoint that the gypsies are the villains of his story. He thinks yes. he is the hero that he is taking out these abominations of, of his people. religion, you know. Right. And so I could see why he wouldn't necessarily know that he's the villain because like even in the beginning of the film when you see him kill the mother of Quasimodo and she's like and he's like, oh, my God, it's a monster. And he's about to go put it into the well to put it out of its misery. First of all, as kind as it was for him to not kill him, it took a lot of his power not to kill him. Um, right. If you read the book, he basically tortured the kid. It's not like the the book is is fantastic in the sense that Quasimodo is a monster. They make him a monster in the book and the disnification of it, I would agree is just, they lighten up the story a lot for kids to they do consume that with every story they, that they, but they, that they buy, but they have to, yeah. no, they don't, but they do. And the reason why they do is because kids like me, when this film came out, I was four So it introduced me to literature, right? It introduced me to these characters that I wouldn't know for at least 10 or 12 years. I read The Hunchback of Notre Dame as a novel when I was 12. So you think for eight years, I had already been exposed to the character and it allowed me to take my preconceived notions of classic literature and be able to digest it in a way that was oh my God, this is not how the movie went. How is it going to end? And I have to finish this book. So it, like, for people like me, it allowed me to really want to consume the book. Whereas, okay, but here's, my, but here's my question. What did you like better, the book or the movie? I like them both the same, actually. Yeah, that's, that's you a like nice political the, answer. No, but, I, most, but most kids who would go on your path and say, okay, I've seen the movie. Now I want to read the book because I'm old enough to read the book. Uh, they're going to read the book and they're be, they're going to be like, 
the Disney one was better. It's because it yeah. was sweet and, um, and saccharine. And mo- a lot of kids would I, do that. A lot They're of kids, gonna... yes. But a majority of kids who are taking in films and books and allowing their their brain and their eyes to digest it. Like, for right. instance, my entire group of friends, they agree that, for example, Frankenstein was a much better novel than it was any film adaptation. Well, I've never read the novel. Oh my gosh, you should read the novel. It's so okay. good. So I can't I can't really speak to that, but my point right. is that a lot of the kids are going to prefer the movie as opposed to the book and you might get one or you know, you might get a handful that will say, well, Disney kind of destroyed the actual story by making it so sweet. Uh, right, and there's I mean there's a testament to it. So like Disney does that with like all of its films, all of its content like like the Little Mermaid was definitely not how the Little Mermaid movie went. Frozen. Frozen was definitely not how Snow Frozen White. went. Not, Snow White, right. definitely not that. Uh, it's just uh, I don't think it's wrong that that's the case though, but it's 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 just bad for the actual creators of the story though, because they, they don't get anything out of but, it other than knowing hey that their story was changed and turned into this. But it they, comes down to the bottom line of Disney just wants to make money. Well, yeah. it's not that, but they had to make the character's likable. And the reason why I say this is this. Quasimodo in the book is a Mm -hmm. jerk. Because he can't... Would you blame him? Well, he's deaf. He has has these social illusions that are completely manifestations of his psyche because he is isolated himself. So he Mm -hmm. has to... He's basically insane. And so he is not a likable character. He has never been a likable character. Because he was never intended to be a likable character. And that's my problem with Disneyfication. I know it's a it's a thing in the world. I get it. I accept it. But it doesn't mean I have to like it. And I will rail against it all the time. If you're going to make something for a kid, make something for a kid. But there's a limit to to making everything nice. On that Hello? note. David Vierkamp, right. what was your impression? Um, I mean, I watched the movie originally when I was really young, so it's it's kind of something that's kind of burned into my head. I mm. uh, I love the music. The movie, the music is very moving, just on its own. It's very uh, emotional. Uh, I did like a lot of the uh, like I like the scene where uh, what's the I forgot already what the villain's name is. Frollo. Yeah. I love when Frollo, Minister that, Frollo, that very first yeah. scene where you know he's. Gets the, he's got the baby and the the priest says you know you know the the, the church is watching you it's an, it's a symbol for like God is watching you you might lie to you can lie to everyone else but we know we know everything you're doing even if you think you're doing it for the right reasons we know and I like that power play um, I I like a lot of the symbolism in the movie um, I also like the very final sequence because it's a it's a really interesting collaboration of 3D and 2D animation kind of like at the kind of the highest point when you see that in animated films before it started becoming more 3d motivated as much as it could be um and it's just a it's just a very memorable film that the the at least the art style is very memorable um but yeah that's 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 my summary <laughs> definitely <laughs> so my first impression of the film as a child I was actually terrified of the film, which is why I kept watching it over and over and over until the tape broke. It was one of those films that I really related to in terms of I was a social outcast of my group. I really enjoyed the artistry of the watercolors that they used in the film. I think that the animation of it was just absolutely beautifully done. I also feel like it was a film that in the middle, this was in the middle of Disney's heyday when it comes to princess movies. It came out right after Beauty and the Beast. It came out uh, prob- just before Hercules and and those kind of classic movies that we associate with Disney. So it was right in the middle of, of the things that were just skyrocketing Disney into the into the common zeitgeist. And I really feel like this film helped pave the way for them to to make features like 
Treasure Planet and some of those lesser known Atlantis, The Lost Empire that came out in around 2000. It's these films were just absolutely beautifully done and definitely underrated in the overall score of Disney films because like it was one of the first times that you had diversity in film because I mean Esmeralda is not your typical blue-haired blonde or blue-eyed blonde-haired beauty. She is you know, she's darker skinned, she's got black hair, and she she it was really a moment of diversity for Disney to really put that character out there. So I think that this film overall did a lot for the social sphere of Disney and it allowed other films to kind of get paved into the Disney uh collection. So on that note, well, we're gonna I mean- go ahead. I can agree with like the animation stuff. The animation is generally always superb in a, in a Disney film. I will say that. I mean, they are kind of like the kings of animation in a sense because um, they were they were pioneers in it. But it's just I don't know. It's just Disney. I, there's something about Disney that just doesn't sit well with me. I just don't like it. Well, I mean, Disney today is not what it was before. I will say that I feel like, you know, you look at these movies, it's back when Disney was a little bit more open-minded at the time and trying to found themselves. I don't know if Disney was ever open-minded to anything, Uh, but at least when they had like, when they would have their cartoons with Mickey and and Donald and, and all them. Those are characters that are supposed to be goofy and unrealistic, and I and, and I get that and everything, but there is technically, I mean, in this one there is a message to it, and I don't necessarily think it's a great message, but it's done in a Disney way, so people accept it. Disney has become just this entity that is there solely to absorb everything. It's it it it's not concerned with story anymore. It's not concerned with maybe pushing the envelope of animation. It's just there to absorb and make money. That's 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 all I get from Disney now. Well, that's yeah, now. that's but now. Got, not the, but that but not that I got much from Disney to begin with. And I could see I, why you didn't get much yeah. from Disney because it wasn't targeted. Mm. It wasn't targeted for the male gaze. The only film right. that I've ever heard that guys like from Disney is Lion King. Yeah. That's fair, and it's true uh, that Tarzan, 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 yeah, Hercules, like that one. Hercules, a lot of girls like more. Yeah, I could see Treasure that. Planet. Treasure Planet was awesome. Treasure Planet, uh, the Black Cauldron. It's weird. It's it's the movies like look, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Is that right? Good job. Good. Thanks. I'm gonna only Notre say it Dame. once. I'm just gonna copy paste that. Uh, it's it's one of the very cliche classic styles that they they built their i mean the focus was animation i mean you look at the movie the story is decent it's decent it's it's not overly extreme it doesn't break anything it's very child consumable don't get me wrong but remember the focus on this was pushing the boundaries of animation at that point you know that's where your focus is and wasn't this the renaissance time of disney it yeah. was the yeah. downward. So it was the downward for the Disney Renaissance. Cause then after that came Hercules, uh, which was awesome. And it was kind of like the up and down effect. This is then, like the end I think of after it. That, so yeah, then after that was Pocahontas and we really, we wait. really went down when Pocahontas came. Actually. I, so the first film that Disney ever released princess wise was Snow White. Then you had sleeping beauty and Cinderella. Those came out, pretty much coinciding, right? Then you have Beauty and the Beast. I'm missing one. Little Mermaid came out before Beauty and the Beast, I believe. And then you had Beauty and the Beast when they were like right in the height of everything that was going on. Lion King came along. Then you had Hunchback. And I want to say Pocahontas came out the same year. Give me one second to look I'll be honest here. Lion King exploded. Quick question. Uh, Snow White and and Sleeping Beauty, were, would those have been reissues? Yes. 
out of the vault. Okay, because I was because because you're, you're like first was Sleeping Beauty and 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 Snow White, and then came this. I'm like, wait, weren't those first two like in the 30s? Yes, they originally came out in the 30s. So, so oh. they brought them back to like start the wow. Renaissance. Yes, because they brought it out of the Pinocchio. vault. Okay, that, that, that's what I'm. No, no, asking. I'm talking just your mainstream princess movies. I'm not talking oh, about okay. all those, right? So when you look at the mainstream princess movies, what they did was the Imagineers. They said, okay, what can we do that will move us forward, right? So they came up with this plan. From what I understand, and I can't speak to this because I haven't researched it. I've only heard the stories I've heard. And basically what the Imagineers were like, okay, we have Disney World. How can we keep this in the cultural zeitgeist, right? So what they did was they started taking these movies that are classics. And they're like, okay. We're going to put them in the vault and every 10 years, we're going to release a new version of it with a new feature, new song, new whatever, and reintroduce it to the society. Because every kid, every 10 years, you have a new generation of kids that are coming out, right? So like, it allows the kids to see Disney movies in a way that is new and inventive to them. And it allows the parents to see the new scenes and things like that that are coming out in Disney movies. They wanted to stay relevant. And that was the way that they could do it was by releasing it for each new generation. Like my sister is eight years younger than me. And her favorite movie for the longest time was Lion King. And it's like it came in waves in my house. It was Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Back to Lion King, so on and so forth. And it was because every so often we were getting a new release. Like when my sister was born, they had the special edition of Lion King that came out when it first came out back in the Mm. early 2000s. And then, you know, you had the diamond edition of the princesses. So it's just a way to stay relevant. And it's these classic features like Pocahontas, like Hunchback of Notre Dame. Which goes to my point of Disney. And I have told you this earlier in private conversations. That's what they're going to do with every intellectual property they own. They are going to put it in the vault and every 10 years they're going to come out with a more mediocre version of it than there was and they will never re-release the originals. And that's why generations, I feel sorry for future generations because their storytelling is going to be horrible. Yeah, but It's going to be nothing. I mean, it was made, Disney at this point was made not to make new content now. It was made, it it made, was made to, to absorb keep, stuff. Yeah, so it's made to take things that were already adapted like made mm-hmm. essentially and regurgitate them into something right. different to sell to a newer audience and to because Disney back then I'm going to say this Disney used to be amazing Disney used to be the company the like I- mm-hmm. innovators and whatever right now you know it's when not they started it? you know when they started this they started this when Technicolor came out the yeah. three strip film of Technicolor you're right because the first thing Disney did was buy the rights to it and he wouldn't let anybody else use it Unless they worked for him. Right, unless they worked unless for they him or, or he was able to buy Disney. their property. So, I mean, Disney as a businessman was great. Yeah, I mean, to be devil's advocate here, you know, the, yeah. the film industry is a business. And, yes. you know, if I was in charge of company, how do I stay relevant so my company doesn't be faded away? He was smart making business decisions. Even though it is cutthroat, it was honestly just good business. Disney is no longer a creative entity. They don't create anything, anything except desire to buy stuff. Right. You said it yourself when you guys went to Disneyland. You went you went to the Star Wars thing and it was the Millennium Falcon and then everything else was a shop. I want to and I want to just say one more thing on that note is that Disney went so far as to and I I bring this up every time Disney gets brought up uh for these reasons. Disney bought a law. I don't know any other person who has bought a law. They've made law in this country Mm -hmm. so that they can create, so that they can take anything in the public domain and use it to profit and no one else can touch it. Hmm. Right. And do they have to buy the copyright to that public domain thing? Not for like a way longer extended period of time. It's like a manipulation like of the public bought, domain. Yeah. Once it's bought, right? It's owned by them. For, no one can touch it 
for like, what is it like? 50, 60 plus years. Yeah, maybe. Can you? Whereas, can you? Whereas you take some. Yeah. For our for our viewers that might not necessarily be privy to this information, can you give an example so that they can they can know like what you're talking about? So uh, let's say uh, we could just use a Disney character like Pinocchio. Pinocchio is obviously something that Disney did not create. Pinocchio is already a story. Disney then buys something like Pinocchio. And then if they don't use it, uh, once they've used it, they've bought the rights to it. They then go to the actual creator of the story. Mm -hmm. They say, hey, I want to buy the rights to this. Uh, once it's in the public domain, that means if it's in the public domain, that means anyone can use it, right? And they don't have to pay for it. It's why um, the movie uh, um, "It's a Wonderful Life" was able to be shown on every station, station because at any time, because then the creators of it let it go into the public domain. Anyone can use its contents. Anyone can view its contents. But Disney buys things off of the public domain, which is bad. They buy it flat, uh, but now a lot of companies are doing that which is messed up but disney made a made a killing off of doing that because they bought so many classic tales such as things like the little mermaid such mm -hmm. as um the sleeping beauty sleeping beauty used the ice to be princess which is frozen. ice princess which is frozen uh ice queen ice actually. queen but yes this is the concerning part of this so they buy it and then they hold it for like 50, 60 plus years, they changed. It used to be just like 10 years. Yeah. Now it's like 56, like around like a lifetime, well, essentially. That, well, and it's just like, messed up. You can't do that. Well, that's like Mystery Science Theater 3000. They own the rights to their host segments that they film in between the movie when yes. they make fun of the movie. But they bought the movie under public, under public, public domain, domain and they had it for, say, three or four years in order to show reruns on syndication. Yes. But once that three or four years runs out, if, if the owner of that film doesn't give them the copyright again, they cannot put it on their DVD. So, but, but that's the whole the point, point of what public domain, domain was supposed, supposed to, be. to be. Yes. You're supposed to buy it, be able to use it for two or three years it's, and then that's it. And then if you want to continue to use it, you have to re up the, the copyright for it every year. So, so like, fine. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I just want to say final no sorry. Final note on this is that Disney just has a chokehold mm. on um, creative properties. That's and, just it. And because like, people don't know this, people think Disney creates this stuff. Well, right. And they don't. And, and they just provide a budget for it. Well, and, and let's just let's stay on this topic for just a little bit longer. I know it's a it's a longer tangent than our, our listeners are used to. Mm -hmm. But Here's one thing about Disney is they've never claimed to be originators. All of their stuff, except for Mickey Mouse and those normal characters that you, you associate with Disney, aside from yeah. those, their movies have never been original. Have never been a what? Original. original. They've oh. always been a retelling of either folklore. But most people right. don't know that. Most of your general viewer does not know that. And it's like, <clears throat> like a microcosm is John Carpenter. When he made Halloween, he said, look, I'll take X amount less if I can put my name on it. So now when everybody, so when anybody ever buys a Halloween DVD or rents it from, you know, a streaming service, <clears throat> John Carpenter's Halloween, he gets money for that. Yes. And, the th but the thing is, at oh. least John Carpenter was involved in the creation of original intellectual property. Right. Disney is not. And that's the point. It's like Star Wars. Star Wars is not Star Wars anymore. It's Disney Star Wars. It's their property. It's their property now. They can do whatever which they want. And that's and that's fine. But my point is kids will not grow up really knowing where the actual stories come from. No. Because like he said, they've bought stuff from from public domain and they won't say that they own it. All of a sudden, they'll just be this thing that, if you do research, is similar to this story that you can't buy in the public domain anymore because Disney already bought it 50 years ago. So, 
And that's the other thing. What about the creator who wants to do an adaptation of a given story, but now, but can't, now can't because, because Disney, Disney has, has gone in every year and bought and you know, X main, amount of stuff from the public domain. And that was the main concern. That's what everyone that was against the, what's now called the Mickey Mouse Act. Mm -hmm. That's what everyone was very upset about was people can't use the public domain for what it was supposed to be right. for. So I, I'm going to articulate this. Lion King is a form of Hamlet. It is a Shakespeare story. Okay. Right. We still have productions of Hamlet in the public domain that are occurring. It is not saying that they can't use that information. For instance, every single storybook that children read have the original stories and they are bastardized versions of these stories, but it's not the Disney version of these stories because I can tell you at least 10 to 15 different storybooks that I have had from my childhood. And I was growing up right in the middle of the Disney Renaissance where it is the original stories of Beauty and the Beast, Rapunzel and stuff like that. I think that the biggest problem that Disney has is that they've fallen into this niche market that is just the retelling of stories. Like right. Finding Nemo Finding Nemo, I want to say is another Shakespeare story. Atlantis the Lost Empire and Treasure Planet or well, no Treasure Planet is a retelling of a story. Treasure it's Treasure Island with with, yeah. with spaceships or space but, pirate ships. But uh, I mean they you're still able to use those those intellectual properties. For instance, Beauty and the Beast is still a story that is told on different mediums from different creators. So, and I mean, yeah, they probably bought rights to use the story from Disney, but it's not preventing anyone from using that information. It's the public's ignorance on what's going on that's... But that's my point. Yeah. That's my point. It's it, it's like the microcosm of, of the Star Wars world. When you say, oh, the casual fan's not going to know to go read the book. Right. Exactly. And that's why Disney puts all the in, the the stuff you need to know, not in the movie, but in the book, so that you have to buy the book now. Right. Whereas before it was different. Before, the casual fan knew the story of Star Wars just by the first six movies. That was all they needed to know. It was it was the it was the true fan, the the crazy fan like me and Dave that went out and bought the EU. But the EU was an arm of Star Wars. Now the films are an arm of the EU. And that's kind that's that's where Disney reverses that stuff. Everything that Disney now does, like uh, Snow White and all those other stories, they make them their own so much that nobody cares to go see the original one. Right. And if they do care enough to go see the to go read the original one, it the Disney one is so different and it's so ingrained in that person's brain that they don't care for the original. When the original is probably written with the purpose of a lesson for you know for life, because that's what stories have always been. And Disney, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, but Disney perverts that. Yeah. Um, Disney perverted it in Star Wars. Palpatine yes. wins. The bad, bad guy, guy wins. wins. That if you're if you're going for children as your core audience, the good guy should win. They should get some because it is just a story. Right. Because if you're if your point is to teach them to do right. You can't have the hero lose. Only when you become an adult do you get that gray area where you can appreciate. Because like I said, Palpatine wins. It's fine with me. I'm an adult. I can understand because in real life, most of the time, the bad guys win. That's the way real life works sometimes. And that, But that's a problem with Disneyfication. When they take something that can be written in original ways to to show stuff like that and then they just read disneyfication it they just right. they make it so saccharine and that's what they did with hunchback they made it saccharine because all of a sudden you like quasimodo you yourself said he wasn't so you didn't really like him but that's the original author's intent right and it's to probably without reading the book it's probably to show that yeah he's an but here's why. Yes. Because he was given a hand. 
He was dealt a hand in life that completely and utterly sucks. Oh, he's yeah. got a hunch on a back. He's ugly. He's stumpy. He's Doesn't short. know his mom or dad. Right. He didn't have a mother and father. He's Lives under by... the guy who killed his mother. <laughs> right. Right. Lives under. Right. The man who raises him is the person who killed his mother. He was about to throw him down a well, but a priest saved him. Yeah. And really, where was the priest other than to save him? Where was the priest to tell this guy? Hey, don't kill my mom. Because remember, remember, the the Catholic Church at this point in time runs everything. The priest should have went up and told Quasimodo, "Don't listen to him. He killed your mother." Yeah. Or given him a better sanctuary. Right. Somewhere else. Or, or told that guy, no, 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 give give him to me. I'll take him in the, and treat him nice. Because he's the pseudo-religious and political uh-huh. um, high lord in this film. And we don't want to get political when we're talking about the mouse because that would be bad. Right. That's another big thing. You know? <laughs> That's for sure. But that, I think now I've, I've been able to kind of... Put it into verbiage of why, why I hate Disney. No, that I think that was very, actually very well illustrated. Uh, I'll be honest with you. You know what I would really like to see from Disney? What? A new Donald Duck cartoon. I'm going to take this over and talk about acting because the voice acting yes. is obviously the most important part of this film aside from the story. Hmm. So uh, voice actors, some people that you might notice. Jason Alexander from Seinfeld was in the film. He yeah, is one of the right gargoyles. Away. Tom Hulch plays Quasimodo. Tony J, as we discussed earlier, plays Frollo. Kevin Klein plays Phoebus. Demi Moore yeah. was Esmeralda. And one person that hopefully Dave Brown would have noticed from our favorite episode, Better Off Dead, David Ogden Steers pl- oh, yeah. played the priest. Okay. And so many other wonderful, well-known actors. There's too many to count because there's like over 50. Um, well, I know the one gargoyle was an actor on uh, Murphy Brown. Yes. And pa- Patrick Starr, who, uh, the actor who yes. played Patrick Starr, and um, Marshall's dad and How I Met Your Mother. He was also in this film. I mean, there's so many well-noted actors to the point that, I mean, if we were to drop all the names, you you would at least know one or two, if not more. So yeah. the voice acting in this film was done really well. I mean, Disney never has a, a problem with their voice actors. They always knock it out of the park. I mean... Right. You can hear the trepidation in, in Tony J's voice when he's playing as furlough. You can hear the 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 rage and and all of that with Quasimodo. And I mean, they, they really do a wonderful, phenomenal job pulling these characters together. Um, in terms of singing voices, I mean, Disney Disney music is the easiest music to sing. It has been told. I mean, even for me as a choir kid, as a voice actress, that taking Disney songs to auditions shows how subpar you are. Um, Because, I mean, everybody should be able to sing a Disney song. They make it very accessible for people. It is basically the beginner of beginners. Um, There's nothing that's really spectacular in terms of the vocalization because it's very straightforward. It's very beautiful. It's very lyrical. I think the best part about it is when you get into... Uh, Hellfire, which is the song that Frollo sings about his yeah, it's my favorite lust. Song it's, the it's the best song. That's my favorite the, song the, in the whole film. Feels like yeah. powerful musical. It's very yeah. powerful. Um, what I love about it is the Latin that they're talking about in that entire scene. What? Um, I mean, the Latin phrases in there. I mean, from if you've ever sat through a Catholic mass before, like I've sat through. Or Dave, you've sat through Catholic Mass. You know that it's very Ugh. lyrical. It's very songing, <laughs> and it's it's fluid. It's very beautiful. And even if you're talking but those about songs hell, are better than what's in a Catholic Mass, huh? That's true. But those songs are sung. That's true. <laughs> uh, much better than in a Catholic Mass. Oh, much better because I mean, whatever. We're not going to get into that, but I mean, no. It's very lyrical. It's very beautiful. I would imagine that if I were to go to Notre Dame, that's exactly how I would feel when I would listen to that. And I agree with you. I think the acting was spot on. I think they do they do their musical numbers well. That's not my point. Is not 
their their execution. They they execute a film almost to perfection a lot, a lot of times. Right. Especially their animation. I do enjoy their animation. Their their technical skills at Disney are are second to none. I think that the best characters in the movie are the gargoyles. Um even yeah, though comic relief. Like you say they're nice and stuff like that, but they are just a manifestation of Quasimodo's psyche. Mm-hmm. He knows he could, he can conceptualize that no gargoyles can't talk, but he's right. got nobody else there. That is his outlet to not going insane in this particular iteration of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it adds, it lends very beautifully to the end when Frollo is hanging onto the gargoyle head that had just spit out molten Those, metal yeah. onto the streets yeah. below, and you see him turn to the devil. And it's just yeah. absolutely beautiful because it, it's just this beautiful formation of this is what hell will be like for you because of the damage that you've done to this. You've city. created a hell on earth and you will now experience its fury. Right. So it's like it's that wonderful moment where the angel of death is not being kind to Frollo. And and it's just beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Like I said earlier, the sim the symbolism in this movie is very, very, very powerful. It's it's one of my it, like I said, it's one of my favorites. And well, I do like the fact that his friends, the the gargoyles, they're also called grotesques. Uh, at least that's interesting. They're, yeah, they're called grotesques. Yeah, and he himself does look grotesque. That's he could easily pour stone on. That's him. He can true. Easily be one. Yeah, that's an act. That's, that's a metaphor true. right there. That's a whole metaphor. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of once you let it go past your eye orbs. This film does have a lot of hidden meanings in it, especially with fire. the The metaphors of fire in this movie are yeah. Just, I I love that. Like when you see him in in that scene where he's in front of the the fireplace. fireplace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you see these cloaked figures in red come out of the fire and they're like yeah. surrounding him. Those are demons. I mean, his I don't demons. Those his are his personal demons. Yeah. And he's confronting those demons when he's talking about his lust for Esmeralda. This is a man who probably. And I'm just going to say it and I'm going to get backlash for it. I know he's probably never slept with someone. And oh. I. And we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about the Catholic Church and that stuff. No, no. <laughs> but that's part of his desire for Esmeralda, right? Is he's right. never, which is never going. He's to never be experienced. Lo- he's never experienced lust or love. Mm-hmm. So and boom, now he's kind of happened at once, and he he's got obsessed it. with it now. It's driving him mad. It, and and it's right. not yeah. only that, but it's his forbidden fruit. Mm-hmm. That's his why he keeps. That's why devil. he keeps going after her. Is because that is. If you think about it in the, in the context of the Bible, Notre Dame is the Garden of Eden for him. It is the sanctuary. It is the house of God. It's him going after his lust and being rejected by his lust, which is his forbidden fruit, that turns the house of God to him to, I need to purge the wicked. And it is only fair that he dies upon the cathedral itself. Because, I mean, even he destroys the front gate. He destroys sanctuary. He destroys the sanctuary. And it's him destroying his last bit of humanity on that because he redeemed himself in the beginning by saying, you know what? He can live with you in your church. I, I don't want to see him. I don't want to raise him, but I will because you're t- you're reminding me that this is a son of God. Yeah, and now he attacks on God's soil in yeah. in his eyes, holding a knife behind his back to stab his technically foster son in the back. You know, and and, and it's it's a it's a symbol of you know he sees Quasimodo as the evil in the world because he sides with the gypsies, a product of evil. Yeah. yeah. So I mean this 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 movie has a lot that you can pick apart in terms of what Disney did with it. And what animators can put into the movie that you won't notice right away until you rewatch it. But I really want to talk about is the visual of the animation, which I think David Veerkamp, I think you could do a really good job with this. Because, hmm? I mean, while it's not VFX work to begin with... It is. It's still a form. It, it's, it's a form that I think that you can elaborate very eloquently on. VFX and animation, I mean, animation and VFX go hand in hand and they are kind of off the same media tree. 
the the best the best part of the animations in this movie is the the blending of 3D and 2D and that is it is just especially the final sequence with the city on fire and you know yes. when he holds her up with his two hands yelling sanctuary where it does a, a 360 pan in 3D on a 2D scale and it's there's like a no distortion it feels so authentic the fluidity of the animations feels so organic and it's all hand sketched on top of 3D layouts so they can pull off this amazing beautiful technique that unfortunately is not used as much today, but is still the foundation of all animations today. Um, right. I, I would like to point out that the movie Anastasia, which was one of the first time that they used c- CGI mm-hmm. within an animated feature, mm-hmm. one of, not the first, but one of the, the, it really paved the way for that movie to be made because right. it came out the year after. It was when... 3D wasn't like the greatest for live action, but they found a really, really great way of using it in 2D animation and allowing them to push into larger sequences when you see a full city and you get the, you can do a 360 pan you or, or um, any kind of fluid movement of camera is way more difficult unless you have a 3D model, like kind of place holding your set. It's like you build the scene in 3D and then you animate your 2D on top of the camera movement. It's like reverse 3D tracking. It's a very powerful technique to allow you to build larger sequences. And at that time, uh, many movies were starting to use it, and and mm. it's been used ever since then. It's probably, I feel like, the, the one time I'd say 3D animation is powerfully used to make a 2D animation sequence better without actually having 3D elements at all sometimes. You know, you just use it for the the camera movement so your 2d stuff can look like realistic to the eye in the way it moves it's really a powerful technique that's great um i think that's a good mic drop on that one rj (laughs) what do you think about sound for this film Oh God, the voice acting spectacular, uh, especially when you really hear the infliction. I don't know if you guys notice it. It's just, uh, it's, it's one of those nice things about Disney Renaissance era is that voice acting wise, they never ever skim on good voice acting talent or a good booth for voice acting. It just, I mean, it sounds like a million bucks really. It does. It still holds up today. I, I just watched it this morning before we recorded this. And it really does hold up really well. Oh, it's just so good. Uh, the sound, uh, what they picked for sound effects and the overall sound design of the film is really, really nice. Um, especially for this day and age, you know, you hear the fire going and then the music really does blend in well with the film. Uh, as far as like, as far as comparing environmental sound and music in like the score of the film. Oh God! I, I like. It's just, I mean, it's so good. I like the fact it, that when you when you watch at the end when they're heating up the the metal to flow through the the gargoyle heads that you can actually hear the yeah of the billows that they're using yes. the gargoyle for, which I think is great. And that's well, that crackling sound of the molten metal as it's going through the gargoyle heads. It's beautiful. Well, I think sound design is key in animation. Yeah, absolutely. Because because <clears throat> otherwise there would be nothing there. Because <laughs> you've said it before on certain animations, like something is falling and it hits the ground and like you expect a larger sure, sound, sound from something from, that's big. From, wait, it was next gen. Yeah, in next gen. When the gen, robot hits the ground, you it said- It sounded you, like a tin metal right, thing sounded like it was rather too, than a heavy soft. object right. hitting solid ground. You know, you got to make it. And that's one of the things that's very prevalent in a lot of Disney well, films. All of a sudden, I mean, you really feel, you feel it when you see Even something. to the point of like when the captain takes his, when he unsheathes his sword. You can hear it, yeah. It's that yeah, nice classic, classic shing, shing. You know, yeah. Yes. But, but it's there and, and it works. The thing that also was going on at this time that we haven't really talked about and that I want to do a tableau on is that there were other animation studios. You had Don Bluth, you had Warner Brothers Studio, you had DreamWorks that were creating classics such as the Prince of Egypt and things like that. And even I was just looking up Anastasia. And that's a Don Bluth film. And you think that these, these guys were really pioneering out of the box animation, whereas Disney was oh, really yeah. pioneering 
2D animation at this time. When you're well, th- I mean, and they were all kind of doing it at once, too. Right. That's the crazy part. It's like, hey, that- they did it. Oh, we should try it because they're doing it and that might catch on. Well, yes. and, and that's where it comes. And the first animated feature that I remember watching is Thumbelina, which is a Don Bluth film. Yeah. And as you watch Thumbelina, it is a film about fairies, but you get that little... That, that sound cue of the score, when the fairies are flying through the sky, you get the feeling that they're flying because of the music. And then Disney yes. did it with Beauty and the Beast. No, yes. I lied. Not Beauty and the Beast. With not Lion King. With Lion King. Because <laughs> it was Beauty and the now, Beast, then Thumbelina. But, I mean, so, you really get that because they were building off of each other's sequences. So when Disney was like, well, let's do this 3D swoop around of the cathedral, which was never done in Disney films before that, they really tried to envelop you in the cathedral. So at least not in that caliber, because in the cathedral, it's just so, I mean, it's scary, well-detailed. It's beautiful. Um, Yeah, because they have to rehand draw it for every frame. Yeah, they actually sat for weeks at Notre Dame. But the benefit... And it's detailed to the point where it gives um, uh, focal depth. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because if you look at the background, it, all the details there put it slightly out of focus. Right. But that's why you pre-do like the 3D sequence because you know where the focal depth is. You can place mm-hmm. it. Yes. You know that at this frame, moving right to left, the focal depth is here, and then you know it's going to move in the next frame because you right. already have it pre, kind of pre-outlined for you. So it allows you to get even more detail with your drawing because you already have a placeholder to get your perspective correctly. And perspective is one of the biggest foundational changes during the actual renaissance of painting. When painters started doing using perspective, how challenging right. it was. If you look at artistic paintings before the renaissance, paintings right. had no perspective. And getting or just 3D perspective, perspective is so difficult on paper. And then animating it, now you have a reference. It takes half the workout. Right. Allows you to right, do more. Because, because stuff before that was literally different perspectives on one thing. Mm-hmm. Like the Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs. They're like flat you completely. Have heads looking, yeah. You have bodies that are facing you, but you have, you know, the torso faces you, but the arms are on the side. Right. The Everything side. orthographic in perspective and design. Right. So on that note, um, I know that there's not a lot to talk about in terms of cinematography and design. But I uh, I know that editing wise, maybe there's some things that you could say about that, David Brown. Edited well. Again, I I have no problem with Disney movies in terms of their construction. Oh yeah. In terms of technical technical construction, um, <clears throat> you have nice shots, uh, you know, power shots for the villain, and so on and so forth. Um, the opening shot. Going, you know, you see the the top of the tower, and then you go through the clouds, and you come down to the street, and and um, I also liked um, I like the sh- I like the the editing in when they find the uh, gypsies in their hidden base, if you will. Yeah, where the Star Wars fan, so it's a hidden base. It's not something <laughs> else. Yeah, one thing you do I need to mention is that you know when they make animated movies, especially during this time. It's always edited before they start animated. So they already pre-planned yeah. storyboard-wise how it was going to sh- cut every point. Right, with with maybe a few minor tweaks here and there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty much... You could probably look at the storyboard and, and uh, you could take somebody who's never really edited a feature film, give them the storyboards and the footage, and they'll find it, and they'll edit pretty much the same thing. Yeah. All right. But it's edited well because because... You don't really notice it. Right. Wonderful. So let's uh, uh, go ahead, RJ. I'm probably going to say exactly what you were going to say, but I was thinking we could go into final review. Yeah. And rating. See, great minds think alike. (laughs) See. All right. So that's a nice shot, Sarah. Thanks. (laughs) Because I hate Disney. (laughs) I know you do. Yeah. Clearly. We have, we have an hour-long why, and conversation and tangent. Yes. Okay. So, RJ, what was what is your final thought and rating? Final, uh, final thoughts and review. I'm going to start with my rating. Uh, I give it a four out of five stars. Uh, only reason I don't give it a five uh, is and it's exactly the point that David makes uh, in the beginning. The movie 
is boring. Uh, especially when you think about it when you're a little kid. Conceptually, you don't think of this movie when you're a kid. You think of all the fun Disney movies, right. like you, Hercules and all that stuff. That's no what way. you gravitate toward. Yeah. But when you get older and you watch this movie again, it is one of the most memorable because of the theming and because of how it really takes you into that area. I think the problem when you're a kid is you usually dead set focus on one one to two characters. And in this, there's so many. This is a very dynamic character movie. There's a lot of good characters to follow. And it's just too much for little kids to really focus on. It was, it's just a really well done uh, movie, I think. I love the sound. The score is fantastic. Um, and the animation is just, it's Disney of it in its golden times. It's its fantastic. Okay. So I give it a four out of five. Wonderful. I like that. David Veerkamp. Hi. So uh, I'm going to give it a five. Uh, and that is because it is probably one of the foundational movies that's inspired me today, regardless of who made it. I enjoy the film. I enjoy the theming. I love the music. And I love the animation techniques. And that's really all I can care about. Fantastic. David Brown. All right. Uh, it's a two. Um, but it's a two. But it's a two. It's... I'm biased. I don't like Disney. That's I just, fair. I just don't. That's fair. But that being said, the movie is technically almost perfect. No, no movie is perfect, but it's it's done well. Its cinematography is done well. Uh, again, the acting. I mean, yeah, I recognize certain voices right away, but again, all top-notch performances. Uh, the songs, yeah, they're they're it's a musical. They're gonna sing well. Um, the animation, again, Disney, spot on. But I agree with RJ. This is probably one of the most adult Disney animated features there is, because I, I agree with RJ. Kids are not gonna see what the adult sees in terms of Quasimodo and how how he desires Esmeralda and then right. doesn't get that. And even, and even the villain who desires her and doesn't get it, but he desires her more just to, just to be uh, uh, overpowering to her. Um, but the kids are, you know, the kids are there for the musical numbers and the nice colors and stuff like that. And just one quick thing on the color. If you notice Quasimodo wears green and Brown, he, he, he wears the colors of earth and, green which sometimes green can be very disgusting and so can the earth be very disgusting uh but other than that yeah it's a two so all right um i'm gonna give it a five because it's one of my absolute favorite disney movies i watched the tape as as much as i could and then i killed it and bought another one i mean it's one of those movies that's that's been in my consciousness since i was a kid i loved esmeralda as a character i loved all of the songs from it i mean it's just one of those films that i think overall they did a phenomenal job on and it's because of that that i really i went into voice acting i went into theater acting was because i really loved this film and it's it's just it's always been one of my favorites right up there with beauty and the beast and i mean it was it was such a far cry from all the rest of the princess movies that I was like, you know what? This is this is awesome. So that's why I give it a five. And if we look at the collective score altogether, it's a solid four. Which is that's fair. Pretty good. That's fair. I really brought that down, didn't I? No, you did. And I, I mean, I don't think that's wrong. I think we I, four need out a of five. That was very realistic. I mean, there's going to be it's, people. It's the most realistic score. There are going to be people who like agree not everybody. With all, all, not everybody's going to like Disney, right? And not everyone's going to like the movie, and not everyone's going to see it clearly. I mean, everyone has their own opinions, and and, and, and that's and it. Everybody is allowed. I think Sarah to has. A, I think Sarah now has a goal. To get to to try and find the one Disney movie I like, oh, the Black Cauldron. That the might most, be the one. Uh, dude, the most un Disney movie of all Disney. <laughs> Black, movies Cauldron Black Cauldron is the ultimate. I've never seen Disney it. movie. It's, Black Cauldron's beautiful. It's where it's 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 yes. beautiful. It's I I can't. I don't even so, call it a Disney movie, dude. It's it is just the un Disney movie. It is the un Disney movie. It's not a Disney movie. It really isn't. I can't say it is. Nega Disney. <laughs> so this is where I'm Might going to most. throw you guys for a loop. Only because I think it'll be fun to interact with you guys on social media. 
So stick around for the end of the show where you can hear where you can find us on social media because what's going to happen is I am not going to announce the next film. I'm going to let you guys guess what our next film is. And what that's going to do is I will give you three hints. It is a groundbreaking film. It has won many accolades in recent years. And it is a foreign film. So with those three clues, we will announce just before the just before we release the episode what the title of the film is and you guys just have to guess what we're going to review next so stick stick around for the end of the show where you can find out our social media links and thank you for listening from all of us here at postcut we appreciate you Later, guys. Want to find out more about Postcut? Check out our website at www.postcut.com. There you can find links to our episodes, as well as our coffee account, where you can donate to support our show. While there, send us a listener request for films to review. Thank you from all of us at Postcut. Because I hate Disney. (laughs) 